Let the glory of the Lord be the passion of the church. Thank you so much, Beth. And what a, what a prayer. What a prayer. As we get going this morning, I would like to take just a moment. Um, I've failed to do this in the pastoral prayer time. I'd like to take just a moment for us to pray for Andrea Jenkins. Andrea flies out of Atlanta tomorrow to Guatemala. She has been in Atlanta doing some training. And so we want to pray for her and then spoke to Jacob Adams uh, and just pray for him as well. All's going well, but I want to remember Jacob as well in Dublin. So let's pray uh, for these two young people who are taking the gospel forth, and then we'll get rolling into the word this morning. Father, we come before you, and it is our prayer, God, that your glory would be our passion. That, God, we would long to see you worshiped among the nations. And God, we thank you for raising up those from our midst who have that longing and who uh, would answer your call and go. And we thank you that we've had the blessing to be able to uh, send them forth and to support them and to encourage them. And God, we ask that you would go before Andrea and that you would uh, grant her safe travel to Guatemala and that you would prepare her and use her in mighty ways there for the glory of your name. And we continue to pray for Jacob and pray to you bless him as he ministers in Dublin. May you bless the worship of City Church today. May they exalt the name of Christ in that place. And may you bring many sons and daughters to salvation. God, we ask now for you to bless this time as we look at your word. As we hear another letter to the churches, God, we need you to lead us. And as we humbly look at these letters, God, we've been reminded that we need you. So we ask, God, for you to speak through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1998, I was a pastoral intern at my home church in Georgia. And uh, one of the things that we did every year was a ski retreat. And so we were going skiing one weekend, and me and three of my college friends decided to go and scout out the ski slopes uh, before the youth group. And so we went a few uh, days early and hit the ski slopes, and three of us had skied a good bit, and one of our friends, Brent, had never been skiing before and was not the most athletic type, um, bless his heart, Um, and uh, was a great guy. We loved him, but um, it was just going to be fun, you know. And so we hit the ski slopes that morning and got going, and we went off, got Brent all suited up, got his skis on him, and uh, he said, what should we do? And we said, go to the top. And so we went and helped him, kind of held his hands and helped him navigate down to the, uh, uh, the ski lift. If any of you have been to Winter Place, you know right out of the lodge, the first lift is right there. And so it was easy to get to. He wasn't too terribly worried. Uh, we were re- very excited. And uh, we got him on the ski lift, and I was the first one. He was behind me, and the whole way up, me and my other buddy, Jonathan, were just laughing because we knew what awaited him. Uh, when he got to the top of the hill. We knew there was going to be disaster there. We knew it was going to be bad. And uh, we didn't know how bad it was because we didn't realize that, I guess, maybe a teenager, well, probably not a teenager, had to be a college student, was also manning the little booth to stop the ski lift. Well, we get up, and uh, me and Jonathan get off, and uh, Brent and my other buddy come up, and we're standing there watching. And when they dump, we've given Brent no tips, no lessons, anything and we, when they dump him, his ski tips were like this, 
and he hit, and he didn't even ski. <laughs> he just went and fell forward, and his feet were in, so he couldn't move his feet. If you've had skis on, you know this is a bad predicament. Well, the guy in the little uh, control booth was, I don't know what he was doing. We didn't have cell phones back then, so he wasn't texting, but he wasn't paying attention. And so we're laughing, and we quickly realize the guy's not paying attention because he doesn't stop the lift. And so the next car comes on, and Brent's laying there with us laughing, and it just dumps people out on him. And there was two cars got dumped on him. There was this pile up at the top of the mountain, and we just thought it was the greatest thing ever. I mean, we were laughing and laughing and laughing. And, you know, the reality of that is we had no compassion on our friend, zero compassion. We knew disaster awaited, and we watched him. It was later that he was like, what if I'd gotten hurt? And we kind of were going, that's a good question, you know. That's a great question. What if you had? But you didn't. It was funny. So we watched, and, and we didn't have the compassion or the maturity to prevent him from doing something that could have resulted in injury. We just watched him fall. We sat back and watched him and enjoyed every moment of it. We watched him struggle. We watched him flounder around from a distance and didn't go to help him. This morning, we are going to turn to Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum. If you want to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 12. As you turn there, uh, Pergamum, to get there, we just travel about 55 miles north of where Scott had us last week in Smyrna. And we travel up to Pergamum. There was about 150 to 200,000 people there. It was a pretty influential city at that time. Uh, it was an intellectual center. There was a library there that had more than 200,000 volumes of books in the library. Uh, there was a, a, a kind of a cone-shaped hill in Pergamum. You can still go there today. Um, and you climb the hill, and the hill ascends about 1,000 feet. And at the top of this hill, there is a 40-foot shrine to Zeus. The Greek gods were worshipped. They were very prominent in Pergamum. And so the, the Zeus um, uh, statue or altar uh, had inscribed on it, Zeus Soter, uh, Zeus the Savior. Many of the Greek gods were called Savior. Another uh, Greek god there was Asclepius. Some of our medical professionals may be familiar with him. He was uh, the god of healing. And his uh, insignia or symbol was a staff with a snake wrapped around it, uh, which was actually the foundation of our current medical symbol. Uh, but he also was known as Asclepius the Savior. There were multiple saviors in Pergamum. But the Greek gods probably weren't the most influential religion or cult in Pergamum. The most powerful and dominant religion in Pergamum was emperor worship the worship of the Roman emperor, Augustus. In fact, Pergamum was the first city in the ancient world to build a temple to a living emperor. They didn't even wait for Caesar Augustus to die. They went ahead and venerated him and started worshiping him while he was alive. And so this was most likely the greatest challenge that the church in Pergamum faced was the emperor worship and the power of the Roman Empire. Uh, turn to, to Revelation 2 and let's look and let's read Jesus' letter to the church here, beginning in verse 12. As we read, I want you to do this for me. As we read, I want you to look for patterns that we see developing. Okay, we've, this is our third letter, and so by now we're starting to see patterns in the letters, and we're going to see these carry on out to the, in the rest of the letters. So start noticing and looking for patterns, and we'll, we'll see if you find there's three that we're going to point out. Okay, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hey, did you see any patterns? Are you picking up on some patterns here that are in every letter that Jesus is writing the churches? Here's the first one, is that Jesus knows each church's situation intimately. He knows each church's situation intimately. Pastor Scott pointed that out last week. The significance of, of Jesus saying, I know. He, he said that to the Ephesian church, I know your works. I know what's going on. I know what you're doing, how you live out your faith. He said that to the church in Smyrna, I know the tribulation and the poverty that you're in, the slander of those that say they're Jews and they're not. And now to the church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. I know, I understand. We do not live outside of God's knowledge of our life. Instead, we live under his providential care. It's a reminder, every time we see this, every letter we come to, we should be reminded that God is intimately and providentially involved in our lives. He knows the challenges of living in Somerset, Kentucky. He knows the things we struggle with. He knows our deeds. He knows how we live out our faith. God knows, and we should find great comfort in that. Here's a second pattern we see developing. Every letter addresses a specific church, but it's also a warning to every church. It addresses the, the needs and the challenges of, of a specific church. So we have a letter to the church in Ephesus, a letter to the church in Smyrna, and now a letter to the church in Pergamum, and we'll continue to more churches. But if you'll notice, in every letter, it says um, in verse 7 of chapter 2, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then as Pastor Scott pointed out last week, uh, in verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and then again um, in in our passage today in verse 17 says the same thing to the churches he who has a an ear let him hear we may not be sitting in Pergamum but we would do well to listen to the warning that Jesus gives to the church in Pergamum okay here's the third thing that we see in every letter is that every letter ends with a word of hope every letter ends with a word of hope Look at, look at what it says in verse 17. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give. To the one who conquers, or to the one who overcomes. In verse 11, it says, to the one who conquers. In verse 7, same thing to the Ephesian church, to the one who conquers. So in the midst of the struggles that the churches have, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who overcomes, I will bless and each one's different. He gives a different blessing, a different word of encouragement. You know what that reminds us of as we see these every time we read these letters? Is that we're reminded that our present situation or our present struggles with sin do not nullify future grace. It doesn't nullify God's promise. 
It doesn't remove the hope we have of eternity. So whether, wherever you find yourself today, in whatever struggle you find yourself in, God does not say, hey, I'm going to pull my grace back from you. That promise of eternal life that I gave you, I'm pulling that away from you. You are no longer a child of mine. No, in the midst of these struggles, the Ephesian church, they're doing all their religious deeds, but they lose their first love. And, and Jesus in the end says, listen, I'm gonna, uh, I, I may remove your lampstand, but he says, listen, I want you to remember that the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And here in verse 17, when we'll talk about today, Jesus calls the church to repentance. But the word of hope is that to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, scholars don't really know what that is, the symbolism there. They don't, they don't really know for sure what the manna refers to or the, the white stone. There's all kinds of possibilities. There's as many as eight different options for each one. There, there's all kinds of possibilities. Here's what we know, is that Jesus looks to the church and says, listen, I know your predicament, I know your situation. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm showing my mercy by calling you to repentance instead of just judging you and showing my wrath. Initially, I'm giving mercy and I'm calling you to repent. And the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, will be blessed. And he sets their gaze on things to come. You will be blessed. The one who overcomes, the one who perseveres. So go, persevere, repent, come to me. Let's look at two things this morning. I want us to look at Jesus' affirmation in verse 13. What are they doing well? And then we will look at Jesus' warning and his call to repentance in verses 14 and 16. So look, at, look with me at verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, that's a... A great statement. The first time I read this, I thought he might be talking about Durham, North Carolina, where Duke is. But he's not. He's talking about Pergamum. A couple people know where Durham is. All right. You guys should know where Durham is. You're UK fans. Okay. I mean, look at the description of Pergamum. Jesus, this is, these are serious words from our Lord. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Later in the end of the verse, it's where Satan dwells. There, there is some spiritual activity, some spiritual power going on here that he addresses. He says, I know your situation. Your situation is not easy. I know the likes of those who surround you. I understand that, that, that faith in me is not what's respected. It's not what's applauded. It's not what everybody's saying. Hey, you should be a part of the church. You should be a Christian. That's not what everybody was saying. Everybody said, hey, you should worship the emperor. In fact, He's so great, we're going to go ahead and build a temple now. He hadn't even died yet. We're just going to go ahead and build a temple to him because he is God, and we worship him, and you should too. He, he knew the, the pressure that they received. He understood that the greatest influence and the greatest uh, religion there was the one of the greatest power of that time, the greatest known kingdom of that time, the kingdom of Rome, the kingdom that was so powerful that it had the authority and the power and the means, that's a really bad combo, to do whatever they wanted in the known world. If they didn't like you, they killed you and took your house. They did what they wanted. So Pergamum is described as a place of Satan, where Satan's throne is. This is not a good situation. Not a good situation. 
But yet the church, what did they do? They stood firm. The church stood firm. It says that you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. So in the midst of that, when everybody was confessing Jesus is Lord, or uh, Caesar is Lord, what does the church do? The church says, no, no, no. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. They held fast to the name of Christ. They didn't deny the faith. They didn't succumb to the pressures of in, the emperor worship. They held fast to the name of Christ. When others walked to the temple of Asclepius seeking healing in its pools, they turned to Christ seeking healing in Christ. When others would ascend the thousand-foot climb to Zeus's temple and pay homage to Zeus the Savior, the church stood firm and said, no, there is salvation found in no one other than Christ. Christ alone saves. They stood firm in Christ. They did not deny the faith. They did not turn from the one who had saved them. They stood fast for Christ. Are we not in a similar situation here? Do we not have the same pressures, similar pressures? Do we not see friends and family turning to the latest self-help book or psychological theory for healing? And in that moment, are we not called to say that healing comes through Christ alone because Christ alone heals the heart, which is the problem of every life or the source of every life problem? Is that not our calling? Is that not what we're to stand for, is for the healing of Christ in the heart of man? Do we not also see peers who proclaim the soaring stock market will bring security and save our future? Oh, we have such confidence in our roaring economy now, and everything's going to be great. Guess what? Salvation is not in the economy. Salvation is in Christ. Christ alone holds our future secure. Christ alone. Do we not also see the the temptation for political correctness and cultural pressures that press in and follow us to, or lead us to, or at least try to lead us to follow the temptations of sin and the trends of the world? But listen, in that moment, we have to stand firm with our trust in Christ alone. The Word made flesh, that He is where truth is found. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that truth does not change. It doesn't change with polls or trends. It doesn't change what's popular and political, politically correct. Christ is the truth. And we stand on Him and on His Word in grace, in love, in truth. See, we, we face a similar situation, a similar call to hold fast to the name of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing that, church? Are we holding fast to the name of Christ? And that's a little more, I believe, than just being a good person. I don't want people to die and go to hell thinking Todd was a good guy. If people die and go to hell and they know me, I hope they know that I serve the risen Savior, that I serve Christ, and that I engage them with the gospel. And my concern for them was their salvation. I, want, I don't want to deny the name of Christ. I want to live boldly for the name of Christ. Don't you? Don't you want to live for Christ? Don't you want to stand for the faith? Don't you want to stand for the glory of his name? 
That happens verbally. That happens as we engage people with the gospel. That happens as we intentionally think through how can we leverage cultural moments like the Super Bowl for the opportunity to engage in intentional conversations with people about the gospel. I don't have a relationship with that person. I want to build a relationship with that person. What a great opportunity to say, hey, come have some chips and salsa and let's watch the Patriots get pounded and then great, we'll love it. All right? And in that moment, we intentionally seek to just build a relationship with them. And if God presents the open door, then we engage them with the gospel. And we share the gospel with them. Maybe that's that night. Maybe it's next Sunday night. We have the opportunity to do that. Maybe it's a month from now when we're standing in in the yard and we're talking over the fence or whatever. And we're talking to them and it's like, yeah, 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 laughing about the game or whatever it was. And somehow it gets brought up and we have the opportunity to speak God's truth into their lives. We stand firm in our faith by being intentional and living for the glory of God. Now let's look at Jesus' rebuke. Look at Jesus' rebuke. Look at verse 14. The words that just grieves you to read, right? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the one who has identified himself in verse 12 as the the one who has a sharp two-edged sword most likely referring to judgment here. The one who has that sharp two-edged sword says that if you do not repent, I will come and I will make war on them with the sword of my mouth. I will speak judgment into their lives definitively. He calls the church to repent. So while the church as a whole is standing firm, right? He's just affirmed them. Verse 13, he says, hey, you're standing firm in the midst of your culture, in the midst of your city. You're standing firm. However, there are some in their midst who are flirting with false teaching. Some who follow after the teaching of Balaam. We read about Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24. You don't have to turn there, but you can just note that if you want to read about uh, his account later. Now, Balaam led the people to act treacherously, it says in Numbers 31. It, it, the bottom line is that Balaam was a stumbling block for God's people. He was a stumbling block for God's people. What he led Balak to do led the people to stumble into sin. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2.15 that Balaam sought gain from wrongdoing. And so now John writes that Jesus revealed, said, listen, here's the problem is that some of you in the midst are following the teaching of Balaam. This leading others into sinful living. They are walking and being a stumbling block as Balaam was. This is not a good situation. Jesus said in Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone, a great millstone, sorry, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Romans 14, 13, Paul makes this appeal. He says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, you know what? Spiritually speaking, don't lead your brother up the ski slope without telling him how to ski. Don't watch him do that either. 
If you're there and you're one of the other friends that didn't think it was a good idea, don't just go, well, okay. Don't watch it happen. Stop it. Spiritually, stop it. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't allow people and teaching to come in that leads people in your midst to sin. Some were doing that. Some held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Pastor Bill talked to us about that. Said He identified the fact that we don't know exactly what's going on with the Nicolaitans and what they taught. We don't know a lot about them. A lot of scholars think they're probably teaching very similar uh, things as the, as the people who follow after Balaam, the things that Balaam taught. We don't know for sure. All we know is that the teaching of the Nicolaitans was ungodly. It was not something that was accepted. It was not in doctrinal integrity. So, in view of the sum who fell, who did Jesus call to repent? The church. He called the church to repent. The church as a whole has a responsibility to watch over the individual in its midst. So Jesus was concerned, as John Stott said, he said that Jesus was concerned of the waywardness of the few and the nonchalance of the many. He was concerned that that some of you in your midst were following after false teaching. And Jesus was concerned that the many were just kind of sitting there going, "Hmm. man, I can't believe he's doing that. He would really read that book? (laughs) Wow, I would never read that. That's on his Apple iTunes account. I wouldn't listen to that podcast. Really? I think that's a serious word for us. Is how do we respond when those in our midst trend towards ungodly living, false teaching? Do we kind of cock our head and cross our arms and just shake our head in pity? Or do we move toward them to try to bring them back in? How do we how do we respond? How do we respond? And here's the question that comes to mind for for me is how did this happen? How did this happen for a church who is standing firm in the midst of Pergamum, where Satan dwells, where the throne of Satan is, pretty bad city, right? How does a church that Jesus commends and says, hey, you're doing a good job of standing firm. You're not denying my faith. Even when one of your own, Antipas, is killed, most likely because he didn't bow before Caesar as Lord. Even when he dies in your midst, you didn't turn your back. How does this church come to a point where it allows some in in its midst to follow false teaching? How does that happen? We were at Cracker Barrel, uh, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago with some men, and Chad Pierce was there, and we were talking about farming equipment and farming accidents. We were talking about how people sometimes will lose pieces of their body to farming equipment. Uh, some of you in here may be short a finger or parts of a finger uh, due to accident. And we were talking about, how does that happen? I mean, you know all these things, right? And Chad shared something that I thought was very enlightening. He said, what happens is you grow comfortable with that piece of machinery. 
And you get so comfortable that where you used to be very cautious and very careful and do everything, you just get comfortable and you just start zipping things through it. And all of a sudden, you get your finger in the blade and something happens. See, comfort can lead to neglect, which then opens you up to dangers that you knew better than to take part in. It's possible for us to grow comfortable and to grow stagnant and complacent and to not have discerning minds of what we read, of what we watch, of what we listen to. And in that comfort, we neglect sound teaching. We neglect doctrinal integrity. We neglect the truth. And before we know it, we find ourselves in danger. A danger that we know better than to be in the midst. That's what happened to the Ephesian church, is it not? They started out loving the Lord. They got comfortable in their deeds, comfortable in doing religious things. And they forsook their first love. Do you really think at the onset, at the beginning, they were going to say, hey, there's going to be a day when we're just going to do stuff and we're not going to love Jesus anymore. Do you think that when Grace Baptist starts, anyone gathered in a room and said, hey, I tell you what, it won't be long, we're going to just forget, we're not going to love Jesus anymore. Did it happen in Ephesus? It did. Can it happen here? It can. What about Pergamum? Do you think this church that stood firm against this pagan culture said, hey, you know what, let's just neglect some here. Let's don't worry about them. No. They get comfortable with looking at the outside culture. And they neglected inside care. We can't get so focused on what's going on outside and throwing sticks and talking about how our doctrine is sound and we've got it all figured out and look at what they're doing. I can't believe what they're doing. I can't believe that. And it's just getting what you deserve and all this stuff. And all the while we're looking outside and, and Johnny over here is struggling. And we're so focused on outside culture that we neglect inside care. We can't do that. We need to know what's going on in the culture around us. We need to stand firm for the gospel. We need stand fir- to stand firm for Christ. We need to hold fast to the faith. But we can't do that at the detriment of those who are struggling. We must come alongside them. Care for them. Help them. Encourage them. Hold them accountable. We have a responsibility to one another as the church. So Jesus is concerned. This is a, a big deal to him. The false teaching, it's a big deal. Why? Why would that be a big deal? It's because Jesus loves the truth because he is the truth. He's concerned about it. It's important to watch people in our midst who could be following after false teaching, wrong teaching. Because Jesus loves the truth. He's concerned about the truth because he is the truth. Holding fast to the word is important to Jesus. Why? Because he is the word. When Paul starts to write Galatians, what does he say? He says, I I can't believe, I'm shocked at how quickly you've deserted the true gospel. And he, he writes this letter, but then he comes around to where Ricky read and said, listen, 
I want you to restore a brother who is hurting, who is in sin, who finds himself in any transgression. I want you who are spiritual who, to seek to restore him. In Philippians 4, 8, it's talking about doctrinal integrity and what we think. We're called to think upon the things of the Lord. We're to set our minds on the things of God. Romans 12, 2, the calling to live lives of worship. How does that happen? Why? Because we're called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. 37, what does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what? And your mind. We must maintain doctrinal integrity. It's critical for every Christian in every church. You have to maintain doctrinal integrity. You have to hold fast to the word. Why? And there's two reasons this is important. Two reasons. One is that godly living is a result of godly thinking. Godly living is a result of godly thinking. You do the things that you think about. Before you do something, you think about it. So we need to think about our use of time, our desire for material goods, our use of our abilities, the purpose of entertainment. We need to think about what is our purpose in life? What is God calling us to? What's valuable not in our economy but in God's economy? We need to think about those things. We need to think about the things of the Lord because the way we live for God is it begins with the way we think about God. We need to maintain godly integrity. Here's a second reason. Is that doctrinal compromise leads to a church that is indistinguishable from the world and undesirable for unbelievers. If, if we step back from doctrine, if we step back from the true teaching of Scripture, then we will be indistinguishable from the world. And unbelievers won't care. They won't care. We have to maintain doctrinal integrity. Harvard uh, released this study just recently. It affirms what Christian Smith, the religion uh, sociologist, uh, said back in 2006, and this just keeps coming up as they study religion. Here's what the, the study from Harvard uh, said. It says that among evangelical Protestantism, there's been a slight uptick in the last decade because many congregants leaving the mainline churches are migrating to evangelical churches that hold fast to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. When the so-called progressive churches question the historicity of Jesus, deny the reality of sin, support abortion, ordain clergy in same-sex relationships, and perform their marriages, people desiring real Christianity head elsewhere. Fact, evangelical churches gain five new congregants exiled from the liberal churches for every one they lose for any reason. They also do a better job of retaining believers from childhood to adulthood than do mainline churches. Doctrinal integrity is important. We must hold fast our faith. We must hold fast to the truth of God's word. How do we do that? How do we do that, Grace Baptist? Let me give you four things that we can do to prevent this from happening at Grace Baptist. Four things we can do to prevent. Here's the first one. These are very simple, brief the first one is that each one of us needs to be diligent to study and know the Word of God. Every one of us needs to be diligent to study and know the Word of God. Do you read God's Word throughout the week? Are you studying Scripture? If not, I would lovingly rebuke you this morning that you're opening the door 
to false doctrine. You're just opening the door and giving Satan opportunity. Because you need to know what Scripture says. You need to understand what God's Word is. It doesn't mean you have to be a seminary theologian. It simply means that you can do what Peter says to do in 1 Peter 3, that we could give a reason for the hope we profess. We don't have to know everything about every religion. We just need to know about our Savior. We need to know the Word. Study the Word. Get in the Word. If you don't know how to do that, come talk to us. Why do you think we're here? We would love to sit down with you. We have a Bible reading plan going through the New Testament. If you haven't got a sheet, they should be out there on the, on the uh, counter. If they're not, talk to Scott and he can get you one. We want you in the Word. We want you to know the Word. It's easy. It's easy. Number two is we need to maintain an attitude of humility. We need to maintain an attitude of humility. There is no one in this room, pastors included, that is immune to false teaching. None of us are immune to that. None of us are, are so there. We haven't arrived to such a point that, hey, we can just roll out of bed and not follow any after, after any false teaching. We can do that. We as pastors have to be diligent to study the Word. We have to be growing in the Word, growing in the truth. And understand that we could fall after false teaching. I have a sinful heart. I need God and His wisdom and His Word in my life. Number three is I would beg you to measure every study, every sermon, every song, every book against Scripture. Don't assume that a song sang by a popular artist is solid. Don't assume a book written by a popular author is solid. Don't assume that a sermon spoken by a popular preacher is solid. Measure everything against Scripture. You remember our study, Sola Scriptura? Scripture alone is the authority we don't stand up here as the authority. I don't stand here today as an authority. I stand up here teaching the authority. The scriptures are the authority. Christ is the head of the church. If it does not conform to Christ, it does not conform to his word, then we rebuke it and run from it. Finally, we need to move toward one another. I think this is what the church in Pergamon probably failed to do. We need to move toward one another. If we see a brother stumbling, struggling, if we pick up on a sister who's reading a book that we know teaches things that are not biblical, we move toward them. Hey, I noticed what you're reading. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, 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 it's great. It's, it's been so good. I really, man, I love the way she talks about this. And it's, Man, it's incredible. I've just never really thought about God in that way. Now, at that point, you're going to be tempted to go, you know why? That's not how God is, right? Probably not the best way to handle it. You say, really, what, what is it? What, what is it that they said? Well, she said this. Look, look, let me show you. Really, because, you know, that's really, Scripture doesn't describe God that way. That's not what we see in Scripture. Oh, but every, and you go from there. 
we move toward one another. Now, this demands the context of a relationship, right? It demands that if you're one of the ones sitting here going, I don't know anybody on this side of the sanctuary, that you might need to sit on that side of the sanctuary next week. That would be great. Is Bill, Bill didn't make it today, did he? No. So when Bill comes back, what if you were all sitting in different places? <laughs> that would be fantastic. It would be funny for one, but two, it would help you meet other people. We know who's here and who's not here simply by what seats are not taken. Move towards one another. Get to know each other. Get to know each other. It's not done on social media. You don't rebuke somebody on Facebook. If you do that, shame on you. Don't do it. Lovingly move towards someone in grace and in love for the purpose of restoration. Don't just sit back. Listen, upward, outward. Upward, outward. A longing that our hearts and our minds would be directed to God, that we'd be renewed with a new zeal for worship. A longing that our hands and feet would be constantly moving to take the gospel to our community. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? I want to share to close this morning a quote from a guy named Craig Keener. He says this, he says, When we seriously examine Jesus' teachings and parts of Acts to discern ideal models for the church, we find there Christians intensely committed to evangelism and other ministry, using all their resources and paying whatever price necessary to accomplish the task. When we compare most of North American Christianity today, we see Christians deeply committed to their own material advancement, spending countless hours each week on entertainment and far less hours on learning God's word. Studies indicate that the vast majority of evangelical Christians today never share their faith with non-Christians in the sense of explaining salvation to them. If we read our culture in light of Scripture rather than the reverse, dare we doubt that the church is sorely in need of spiritual awakening? The church is sorely in need of spiritual awakening. Our prayer is that our church would experience revival, a renewed zeal for worship and prayer, an awareness of the opportunities that God's put, God puts before us, the wisdom to make the most of those opportunities, the boldness to stand firm for Christ. And that we would see many come to Christ. Not because Grace Baptist is a great church. But because our God is a great God. We long for awakening. We've got to guard our doctrinal integrity. Care for one another. Be responsible for one another. Worship our God. And go out into our community for his glory. And for the salvation of those who don't know Christ. Let's pray.